everyone, and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm your host, Lena Evajera, and I am so glad you're back. This podcast, as you know by now, is about hope, where our goal each week is to help restore your hope in a broken world and to give you the tools to hold on to that hope for good. Now, every week, as you know, I'm bringing a guest, and today is really fun for me. My guest is a prolific author, but friend, I met her a year ago at a conference, and I found out, surprisingly, that she and I share the same alma mater, which, if you know where I went to college, was sort of a big deal. And we also shared publishers. My first two books came out by Moody, and I think all of her books uh, are published by Moody. She is well known for writing uh, Made for More, Humble Roots, and All That's Good, I think is her last book. Uh, I've watched her on Twitter, and I think she is the most prolific tweeter that I have observed with literally rants on Twitter. Her name is Hannah Anderson, and Hannah, would you not agree that you tend to write papers on Twitter in 140 characters or less. I do. And for a bit, I began to feel like, is this wise? Should I actually be writing blog posts? And then I just threw all caution to the wind. And I said, this is my medium. Twitter is where I love to go. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to put my thread out there and you can deal with it. If you wanted it to be a blog post, you can go write the blog post. <laughs> but well, I love Twitter. I love Because you do. You don't just put a little thought. You really carry a thread. I do. And and I for me, it is what I can handle. If I had to sit down and write a blog post, I would obsess about craft too much. I would worry because I do. I write, I write books. I'm an author. So when I get into my author mindset, I, I worry about the shaping and the editing and the, you know, all of these craft-based things. And so what Twitter allows me to do is just focus on the ideas, just put the idea out there. And so for me, I found that if I actually try to make a blog post, it'll never get up. It, well, it, and people aren't reading as many blog posts now as they used to, even mm-hmm. though people still use that word blogs. I think it's sort of faded. You are the one I would say is a ruminator, right? You think about stuff, you mull them over. I think that should be a label. Yeah, I love that. Uh, my husband calls me an ideas factory. He oh. says, you're just an ideas factory and we got to figure out like how to let that serve other people. Because I think sometimes when you have a personality where you're, you think about things and your head's in the clouds or whatever, you can become somewhat impractical. Like that's my struggle is that I just think too much. And he had the perspective and the insight. He's like, no, that actually is what you do. You, yeah. you, you do thinking. So what just, do you think the most about? Like, are there uh, <laughs> what do I not think about? That's, that's really the hard thing because I, I have a hard time cycling down like just to relax Mm. because everything is always triggering some kind of connection for me, even like really mundane, simple things. And my kids are hilarious because they, I've got three kids. I've got a 14 year old, 12 year old and a nine year old. And they have lived with me long enough to know, like you don't want to get trapped in a conversation with mommy. (laughs) (laughs) And my husband will be like, you better behave or I'm going to have your mother have a conversation with you about your behavior. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's like Chinese torture. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you live in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I didn't say that, although that is part of your identity and writings. Tell us a bit about how you landed there, what you do there. 
Yeah. So we live about an hour from where my husband grew up. He is a native Virginian. Um, he grew up in a rural community in the Appalachian Mountains, which the Blue Ridge is part of that larger chain. And about eight years ago, we were um, in between ministries and he was trying to discern God's will for his future. And I said, well, what do you want? Like, just what do you want to do? And he's like, I want to live in Virginia. I want to go back home. So uh, very quickly after that, God led him to, um, he's a pastor of a small uh, country church here. And we have just been putting down roots in our community and trying to live uh, very closely with our neighbors and our kids, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in their school and in all kinds of different community organizations and just kind of embody, um, ministry and the Christian life here in this community. Um, but he's from this area, but I grew up actually about two or 300 miles north in Pennsylvania. It was a similar community. It was a similar, um, it was in the mountains. It was uh, a working class community. Um, so relocating here was not that hard for me because a lot of the same rhythms were in place and I knew them. Um, I also grew up in um, a fairly uh, conservative, traditionally religious family. Um, And my grandparents on my mom's side were Christians. And so I have a a heritage and a legacy of of being in the church and of of knowing the name of Jesus since a very young age. Um, And like you mentioned earlier, eventually was raised um, by my parents, raised in the Christian school movement, and went off to college. And that's where I met my husband, him having come from Virginia. We met um, in South Carolina at school. And really, well, they- yeah, I was going to say the college part is, is is very interesting. So if you knew what the college we went to, and I'm not making it so much a secret as much as it's a very Christian conservative college. And um, and yeah, you it kind of carries its own baggage. And so you met him and you guys had a traditional courtship, dated, married all within a few years of being there. Yeah, because that's what you do, right? <laughs> I mean, anomalies, right. yeah, I mean, it was very much, it was right. a context that uh, I think in some ways it, it's nice that, that it did point people to think about marriage. You know, it did it was more traditional context because, you know, I look at my, um, the kids in my church now who are that under college age, um, you know, 20, early twenties and like marriage may or may not, it's not even like an issue of whether God's calling them to marriage. It's like, it's just not happening. Like people are not marrying, um, in our community. So, but we were in this, uh, conservative environment. So we met and we kind of connected around our rural roots but we also connected around ministry. Um, he was headed into ministry. I never wanted to be a pastor's wife, and he I, was a pastor major. No, see, this is this is the thing. He tricked you. He yeah. did. He did. He was a, a missions major. Wow. So he was going into foreign missions, and I thought that is, that that is something that resonates with me. So um, we, I did. I had this sense that that's a call I could you know, get on board with. And so we had that as kind of a tie. We had rural roots as kind of a tie and God led us together. And, um, we did spend a year overseas in New Zealand pretty early on in our marriage, um, doing church planning work as kind of a, uh, 
the pastor who was doing the planning had gone on sabbatical for a year. So we were there. Um, and we, you know, we had our kids and just the kind of quote unquote, typical conservative, you know, family structures and expectations. Um, but we also landed in ministry and found out how hard life is. And um, in what ways? Well, um, I think when we were growing up, we we saw ministry and the church as a way to, um, I don't know, to to prove your commitment to God. Mm. You know, just as a means of saying I'm sold out. You know, I want to do whatever you call me to. And a lot of times, at least the way I was raised, there is this kind of sense that uh, kind of sacred professional work, like a full-time call, quote unquote, you would hear sometimes was somehow the greatest way you could show your commitment. And with that comes, I mean, it, it, it shows you very quickly where your immaturity is and where you might know a lot about the church, but that doesn't mean you necessarily know a lot about Jesus or you don't know a lot about yourself. Um, Mm. And so I feel like our school of um, discipleship and our own personal spiritual formation happened through the challenges of ministry um, and our own pride and our own weakness and our own failures really just being the stage on which God revealed himself and began to slowly strip us of a lot of self-reliance and pride and expectation that, you know, to the point where now I'm like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Right, right. <laughs> you know? well, yeah. I mean, I want to press you a bit. Tell, be a little bit more specific because first, maybe even before we get to that, like what are some of the challenges that really molded you? But before we get to that, just in point of definition, and we've talked a lot about a conservative Christian background and it has a bit of a negative connotation but I think in some ways the 80s and 90s, or early 90s, maybe had that feel. What would you define as that? Right. And maybe I should say traditionalist versus conservative. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I don't want to say conservative. Like I consider myself a conservative to this day. I, I'm conservative. I believe the Bible is true and powerful and living. And I believe that um, orthodoxy and, um, you know, the, the teachings of the historic teachings of the church, we have to cling, we have confessions, we have creeds, we have doctrines that, that we are bound by. And so by that definition, I would say conservatism. Yeah, I'm a conservative, but I think, um, in a lot of spaces, there was a traditionalism that was more, uh, the results or the, the outgrowth of maybe a longing for a past that wasn't, um, accessible anymore to people. So like, you know, even just some of the, uh, men do this, women do that. Here's your roles. Um, and, and even saying that, I feel like that has baggage, but like even like a legalism or, or saying, this is what it would look like for you to be a Christian woman. You must wear this, you must do this. Um, you must read these books, you know? So it's kind of the categories of, uh, how are you defining your sense of self? Is it in your relationship with Christ and in the work the Holy Spirit is doing in your life? Or is it in adherence to certain external structures and boundaries and acceptable, um, 
you know, paradigms that these things outside of us have our approval. So, um, and I don't know that we ever bought into them like as intensely as I have seen some folks do, but we also didn't, we also didn't realize how much power they had in our lives either. Right. That's a good way to say it. So when you are in a ministry context where you're struggling to care for the very real wounds that people are experiencing, whether it's through because they've experienced uh, spiritual abuse or they've experienced harm. um, And they're asking really profound questions about God's goodness, um, whether he can be trusted. Suddenly all of those laws and rules and external (laughs) structures can't touch that. Mm. I mean, it has no power. Um, so you learn very quickly that a lot of things you invested maybe your time and emotion in, um, really aren't going to be useful in the actual work that God is doing in the world. Where did you, how did you find the key to, like, was it just in the word? Like, how did you connect to God at that level to break out of the traditional pressures and maybe binding, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, one thing that I really, really appreciate about my background that I will forever defend and love is that it was very, um, I memorized so much scripture Mm. growing up. And I understand that there's a possibility where you can even memorize scripture from a legalistic perspective where it just becomes a habit or an obligation or a duty. But I, because I was in Christian schools for my education, I, through God's sovereign kindness, memorized so much of the Bible and it was in my head when I needed it. And so I didn't always understand what I was learning and what I was memorizing. But then when the crisis came, the Holy Spirit would bring it to mind. And a lot of the, the, the process of change was letting the scripture speak for itself and not reading my presumptions into it or not framing it a certain way as proof texting, you know, like here's an issue. Now here's the verse, but wait a minute, let me go read that verse in context, or let me go see what the actual logic of the scripture is. So one of the things that I think my husband and I laugh about is some of the somewhat legalistic practices that we may have inherited. One of the things that we were taught was if you can't prove, you know, you have to measure everything by the Bible. So we had this fundamental truth imparted to us, which was be biblical, be biblical, be biblical, measure it by the Bible, measure it by the Bible. And we started measuring a lot of those external things by the Bible and they just didn't stand up anymore. So it was fascinating for me in that process to see how be biblical became the source of freedom. Mm. That's so good. How would you, like, you've hinted at what a legalist is, you know, but maybe defining it, but also how can a person tell, and really I wanted, when when I thought of having this podcast with you, I sort of knew you were in my background and sort of a legalistic bend. uh, And I thought maybe we could focus our conversation on this. How do you find hope 
for somebody who's been stuck in legalism, but how can a person tell mm. if they're sort of in this rut of I'm stuck in legalism and I can't even tell? Right. And you know, it's what is fascinating about legalism is it's very easy for us to define it as like conservative legalism, but there is liberal legalism. Um, mm. It transcends all categories because it is a way of thinking about your acceptance with God. And I wrote, um, I don't remember which book it was, but I once talked about legalism being an attempt to model God's character by bypassing God. So there's an attempt to do right things. And a lot of times, even the the thing that you're aiming for may be really good, but you're trying to do it in human dependency and reliance. Mm -hmm. And so um, what happens is if there's a good thing like purity or there's a good thing like we want to raise our children to know God, if you try to reach those goals in human strength and human standards and human mechanisms apart from encountering God, being transformed by God, being renewed and restored by the Holy Spirit, you're going to end up in legalism because what God is doing, he is making us pure people. But the way he's doing that is he's confronting our impurity. He's confronting us right. first. Yeah. Follow the line. I have a question following up, but keep going. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I think makes legalism so powerless is that it is it is bypassing the only source of life and power, and that's God himself. And so you can try to attain all of these things that would be good choices, right? So these right things that you're supposed to do, this this list of behaviors, um, whether it's, well, we should be kind or we should be loving or we should be separate from the world or we should not do these things. Um, even things that are good and right and true, if you're trying to attain them in your own strength and apart from submitting and humbling yourself before God and saying, I can never get there on my own, you know? So I, the way I tend to think about legalism is it is not simply the object or the thing that becomes the mechanism for legalism, it is the attitude of the heart. And I think Paul talks about this. I forget in one of his epistles, he talks about the fact that we can make all these man-made structures to control our lusts, but they will never have any effect because they can never get to our heart. That's to paraphrase um, that portion of scripture. But for me, the way God break, broke through some of this was to just put me in positions where all of my righteousness couldn't fix it. So it, it came for me, it came through suffering. It came through helplessness. It came from, um, you know, like we had a situation early in our ministry where my husband, um, he resigned to pastor it because it had just become so contentious and so difficult and it was devastating. Um, and it looked like we had failed and it looked like, and we, we had, honestly, we had, um, <laughs> but it was just gutting and, and we were so helpless and none of the things that 
we've been taught to rely on could help us in those moments. Um, and so that's when God became strong. Wow. Well, one of the things that you are talking about, and I think is worth spending a second on this, even going back to this concept of purity in a sense, uh, the, the mistake that people like this nuance with the heart versus the action, because it's easy to say, well, legalism is wrong. It's, it shouldn't be. And so you take all of these rules. And, and in fact, just recently a book came out on, there was some sexual revolution, you know, mm-hmm. thesis of the book. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And, but it, the, the thought that, well, throw out the rules, it's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You're still stuck in the same, it's just the other side of the legalist coin of saying none of this matters because that's not really what God is saying, right? I mean, t- talk to that a bit, like sort of how people who come out of legalism are tempted to be like, well, no rules for me right? because God agrees with me and swinging to the other side of the conversation. So there's a couple of things I've observed both in my own life and in my, the life of my peers because you go through this process with other people, like you're in school together or you grow up together. And so you have friends that are going through the same kind of crises, um, maybe at a different speed, but they're going through it too. So I've watched how we all go through this process. Um, And one thing I've seen is you can just rebound to the other side where maybe you're raised conservative and is very legalistic and it's so overwhelming that it's almost like pulling um, a bow and arrow back that once it's released, it just goes flying in the opposite direction. And yet what I often notice is a lot of people don't actually escape legalism. They change the things that are markers of goodness. (laughs) That's so good. That's so good. So they change the set of rules and they change the standards, but they're still locked in legalism because they're still measuring themselves by whether they meet those standards. They're still trying to attain them themselves. And they are also reversely judging those people who don't attain them. I would say even that's at the heart of you could you could argue that that's at the heart of some of the social justice movement. Yeah, I, I do think that's a legitimate critique. Yeah. I think that God is concerned with justice and he is concerned with healthy community and he is concerned with flourishing as much as he is concerned with purity. And we can try to reach all of those things in ways that rely on us and put us at the center and put our will and our energy at the center, or we can try to pursue those things in ways that are holistic and consistent with the gospel. So I do think almost any goal, good goal, can become a form of legalist. Yeah. And how do you live your life in, in a, such a way where you stay in that zone? Do you think it's possible without continuous steady, you know, I guess for a lack of a better term, failure and pain and suffering? Yeah. I mean, can you learn to control, you know, live in such a way where you're responding correctly or, or do you need that suffering well, to remind Well, you? I think we have to be broken. And God uses a whole host of things in our lives to bring us to our knees and to humble us. And if we, you know, if we are, we can learn quickly. <laughs> you get into a, a position where you learn how this works, right? And you stay on your knees. Um, so I, I really honestly believe that the antidote to legalism is humility before God. 
Um, it is a, a deep, profound recognition of our own inability and our capacity to be wrong and our desperate need for the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Because what that does is even when we're pursuing a good thing, we're not relying on our ability to identify it as good. We're not relying on our ability to attain goodness. What we are doing is relying on God um, to work through us. And, you know, in Ephesians, he talks about, um, this is beautiful. This is one of my favorite, favorite passages because it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. So it's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? So we talk about that it's uh, not of good works. You know, it's it's by our salvation is by um, faith through the grace of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Paul really establishes this clarifying, it's not about what you do. You are not accepted in God. You are not saved by your works. It is grace and it is faith in God's goodness. However, he doesn't end there. He goes right into the next verse, which is verse 10. And he says, and God has ordained good works for you to walk in. So it is not this sense that we aren't to be doing good. It's that we've got to get it right where our dependence to even accomplish the good works that God has ordained for us is through him and not ourselves. That's awesome. So freeing too. If we could just stay there, you know, and I think that's uh, that's awesome. On a more practical, just we'll pick back up on this, but just kind of like you say, so you end up in the. When did you start writing? I guess I just want to. Oh right. Follow, what did you right. study? What did you study in college? Um, I studied the humanities, which was. Okay. Did you think you would write books? No, I mean, no, 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 no. So, so going back to like traditional structures. Um, you know, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be, and I also came from a background where my dad really wanted his daughters to be educated, but he didn't want them to have careers. So. <laughs> Stay home. Cook the meal. No, it, it wasn't <laughs> like he was, he, he valued home and he valued us as people and he valued our minds and he, but he just didn't really see a career path for us. So when my sister and I went off to college, he was our biggest supporter to be in college, but he wanted us to learn things that would just make us better people. He didn't mm -hmm. really care if there was any marketability to our degrees. So I ended up studying things like history and language and philosophy and theology. And I can see now God's hand in that because it's exactly what I draw on when I write. Um, but I, I used to joke that I got out of college and I you know, I was basically qualified to be a really interesting dinner guest. <laughs> <laughs> Which you are. <laughs> so, so I started writing when my youngest child was about 18 months, two years old. And um, it was a combination of a whole lot of things. It was watching my daughter, my oldest child, starting to grow up, realizing that whoever she became as a woman would she would learn from me that her vision of womanhood and Christian womanhood would come from the life I lived in front of her. And that really kind of kicked me into gear thinking, well, what do I want her to know about womanhood? And what I wanted her to know most was that a Christian woman obeys the voice of God. 
and mm-hmm. she submits her life and her plans to God. And I recognize that part of my doing that meant listening to the Holy Spirit's prompting to develop gifting and to serve through gifting, not just to serve through maybe my calling as wife and mother, but that I really had to take seriously the distinct gifts that he had given me. Um, And so I just started doing it really slowly. Um, At the time, my husband was also between ministries and we were (laughs) broke, completely broke. And I also, I did think, I said, what can I do that will serve my family? How can Mm -hmm. I find some kind of work that I can still care for them because my kids were very young. Um, But I also can, um, you know, serve God, serve my family out of the gifting he's given me. So I just started writing and um, I committed to God that I would spend two years developing craft and learning the industry. And it was up to him to do something with it if he wanted to. Um, And within 18 months of those first two years, I had contact with a publisher with Moody and was working toward a contract. And that is unheard of. I mean, like if you know anything about publishing, that's not how it works. So what, what, how did you develop the craft in those 18 months? Just practically speaking. Um, okay. Blogging? So I set up a blog that was designed to be a portfolio more than just a daily blog. So what I did with my blog, which was a little different than how some people use their blog, is I committed to posting one essay a week um, that was well-crafted and somewhat devotional, uh, thoughtful. But my goal was not just to put up content. It was, Mm -hmm. I'm going to commit to put up almost like a column, you know, like a weekly column. Right. Right. And so that gave me the accountability I needed to keep posting um, before I had, you know, places to write otherwise. And then I just started pitching to to places. I just started seeing opportunities and saying, Hey, can I write for you? And taking each one, it was like each step um, praying, is this the opportunity? Try for it. When God opens the door, go to the next one, go, go, go. And, And it felt like to me at every point, I'd be like, okay, that was great. I love that. That was good. Let's, that's good. I'm satisfied. That's enough. And very quickly after that, God would be like, nope, here's the next one. Step out in faith. Wow. Nope, that's not enough. Step out in faith. And so I, I'm grateful for the fact that I have a lot of confidence that God has built this for me. And um, it's been so holistic and organic that I don't have, I mean, I have plenty of self-doubt, you know, plenty of fear, and plenty of lack of faith, but I don't have a sense. I mean, God has been so present with me in, in leading me through this and guiding and development of craft and opportunities that I really can only attribute it to. This was what he wanted to happen. Yeah. Would you have a plan already? Like, do you have a 10 book plan or do you just go, when do you decide what you're going to write about next? Well, I, I don't have that far out, but I have noticed that my work tends to kind of sit in a similar space. And one of the things that I'm, I'm very concerned about and kind of 
a message I feel I have to bring that's distinctly Hannah Anderson is about um, the goodness and the flourishing that God has for us. Um, a lot of my work can be rooted in Genesis 1, um, whether it's talking about being made as image bearers, whether it's talking about our limitations being creatures, um, you know, being made limited. Mm. Um, uh, all that's good kind of came out of the idea that God made the world good and that that's the trajectory of his creation. And we live under the curse, but how do we move through the world in such a way that we have eyes to see the larger goal of his goodness? So I do find that my work kind of sets in those similar spaces, um, even though the topics are slightly different. What are you working on next? Well, that- yeah, I, I do have another contract, uh, another book under contract with Moody. And I think it'll be, um, I think it'll be like the, the fourth part of this kind of quartet of books. I kind of envision these books working together and, and I still haven't um, entirely nailed down what it's going to be, but I think it's going to be in the realm of vocation um, and understanding the work God is doing in us and the good work that he has for us to do. Well, and you hit on that. I jotted down a question when you were talking about like starting to write. And I was thinking a person who's listening, you talked about the importance of developing gifting how, how would you encourage people to develop giftedness? I mean, there are so many people who've been Christians for years and you still don't really get a strong sense that, 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 that they're confident in what God has created them to do. How does a person find mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I think for me, it was part of it was a process of stopping long enough to say, what do I gravitate toward? When I have my choice, what do I just naturally go toward? Um, and then it was also combined with what are the people around me confirming and affirming? So I think that the specific kind of gifting, either it, whether it's the gifts of the spirit or it's partly the personalities that God has built into us or the skill set that he has given us, I think those are actually apparent to the people around us, even if we can't see it. And so it's not just vocation is not, I have this dream and I want this thing to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, I've decided I'm going to be this thing, you know, (laughs) like I've decided I'm going to be an author. It is the difference between saying I've decided I want a published book versus I've decided God has called me to write. And Mm -hmm. I had no intentions of moving toward writing books. I know some people have this dream, like they can't wait to see their name on a book. That was never my dream. My understanding was, as I moved into these spaces of calling, was I know I'm supposed to write. I know I'm supposed to write this essay. I know I'm supposed to write this article. And I gravitated toward these conversations naturally um, in terms of, I found myself thinking about these things. I found myself caring about these things. And one of the things that I had to really unpack in my own process of vocation was recognizing the goodness of desire. And I kind of grew up with this sense that if you wanted something, it must be bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You know, like, 
you can please God or you can please yourself. Those are your two choices. Right. Um, right, right. And so what God had to do was really redeem that for me and say, no, what if I made you a certain way? What if you like to do certain things because that's exactly what you're supposed to do? And so there was a process of removing that kind of suspicion from my desire and saying, well, if God is sovereign, if God knit me in my mother's womb, then he had a plan for this life that I have. And he had a plan for the kinds of things I like and the kinds of things that I think about and the kinds of ways that I see myself impacting the world. And I can either submit to that plan or I can fight it. Um, And I think what's beautiful about the word vocation is it is literally translated calling. It means the call. And so you're responding to something outside of yourself. You're not creating the dreams. You're not making the plan. You're not coming up with the three easy steps to being a social media guru or whatever. You're simply following in submission and obedience to what God has already made you to be and he is leading you to become. That's so good. Where do you find the challenges you face in the pursuit of your vocational? Oh, that's what's path. so beautiful about it. Um, the challenges are myself. It's my own fear. It's, <laughs> it's my own um, insecurity. It's my own pride. It's my own selfishness. And so uh, there's in Genesis 2, there's a verse that talks about God putting Adam in the garden to tend and keep it. And I did not, I don't know Hebrew, but I've read scholars. And there's a funny play on words there that God put Adam in the garden to tend and keep it, but that the garden would also tend and keep Adam. So Mm -hmm. that even though Adam is called to this vocation, it is the vocation that God is going to use to make Adam what he is supposed to be. So I often find that to be true in my work and my callings, whether it's as a mother, um, as a pastor's wife, as a writer, that it's those things, those challenges of trying to steward those responsibilities faithfully that are actually the process of sanctification for me. So I become a better writer when I'm less scared about what people think. I become a better writer when I'm willing to trust God with my words instead of crafting them for public opinion. So it's those kinds of things that I have loved to see the Holy Spirit using in my work to confront and correct me. Say, what are you scared of, Hannah? What are you trying to manage here? What are you trying to control? What are you trying to do? And then really get to my underlying motives and confront them. Um, How often do you do this work? Once a week? Once a month? uh, Once a day? This kind of (laughs) self-awareness? Yes, this work. It takes work to think things. It does. Well, so here's, this is how it happens. I get on Twitter, right? And I'm just thinking and putting things out. And I know the minute that I put a tweet up that is self-important or Mm -hmm. 
you know, pointing a finger at someone else or trying to be smart. So this is my, this is my personal stumbling block, wanting people to see me as smart, right? So I will know, I will tweet something and the Holy Spirit comes along and says, oh, Hannah, would you stop trying to be smart? <laughs> and I know, and he, and he is right there in the moments. And, and sometimes I, I will actually like, I will take tweets down, you know, if it's only been up briefly and no one's interacted with it. And I, I, I will know that was wrong. I got to take that down. So yeah, it's, it's a constant good. kind of what is my heart doing in this moment? Why does it need this? Why is it making this choice? It's funny. Come to think of it. I mean, I, I have my issues with social media, different set of sanctifying work, but I never thought of social media as the great sanctifier, mm. but it really has these levels of, of pushing us towards getting out of the, you know, the sinful habits of thinking. And that's interesting. Um, wh- what in talking about Twitter, and I know we're towards the end of our conversations here with, with each other, but I, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on maybe big categories. You, you do comment on culture, on um, roles, you know, uh, husband roles, wife roles, generational you know, patterns of behavior. And, and so one of the things we, you had mentioned the sentence, the conversations of our times, what are the two or three big conversations of our times, especially as a Christian person approaching life and culture? Um, I do think we are living in kind of the fallout of kind of identity politics and understanding where our identity is placed and who we are. Um, for sure, American Christians are struggling to know um, who we are in the midst of this society that is rapidly changing. So one of the things I think is essential for believers to understand is to really ground their sense of where they belong in the world in Christ and his work. And I think without recognizing it, that's what really prompted me to write Made for More, was this sense of is your identity first as a woman? Is it first as an American? Is it first as a Republican? Is it first as whatever list of, you know, how we classify yeah. ourselves? That's just the water that we live in, right? That's just, we swim in this. This is the cultural moment. This is how we're all thinking. It's not like it's anything unique to any one of us. But because of that, we have to be really clear as Christians that our identity comes first and foremost from the God who made us in his image and through that is being restored through Christ Jesus. And that's how we've got to think of ourselves. Along with that, I think um, probably the questions of the day relate to that in um, the the questions that are at the forefront of society. Uh, the church is called to speak life to the world it exists in, to the society it exists in. So our society is grappling with um, sexuality. It's grappling with systemic abuse. It's grappling with um, racial divide. And so while those conversations may not be ones that we necessarily want to get involved in, they are the ones that our culture is struggling with. And Christianity has unique answers to them. And the gospel has life and health and redemption for people who desperately need good news. And so I believe that each moment, each cultural moment does need the gospel applied to it very specifically. And as Christians, we must be aware of the cultural moment that we exist in 
and we must understand the gospel, and then we must be able to apply it and to say to those who are struggling, um, you know, to understand uh, justice, like even something about all the, the widespread abuse that we see in the wake of the Me Too movement. And how does the gospel apply to that? Well, the gospel says that women are made in, in the image of God and they deserve honor and respect and they should be protected. And there is a justice that must be the standard. But it also teaches us that none of us are so far from the grace of God is that he cannot redeem. And I think that's one element that is missing in our conversations is what would it, what would true repentance look like and what would true redemption look like? And last question, I promise, because I think that, um, that this is also really like, takes it's a lot of thinking. And I, and I actually disagree with what you said, like not disagree, but there's a comment, you are smart and it is a smart conversation. And so don't ever question that. This has been honestly one of my favorite podcasts and I appreciate this so much. I would have you for another hour, but just to wrap up in a practical fashion, I'm sort of an ER doctor where simple people and sort of what you do and what you don't, what would you say to the person listening? Who's like, man, I want that. I want to have these conversations, these gospel centered, but we get so bogged down with how it's done on social media and everything sounds so wrong. It comes out as if we're fighting with each other. What are two or three practical down to earth Christian things that a Christian who wants to live that style and engage in conversation of our times can do? Right. Well, the, the two things that I work on to remember is the person you're talking to is an image bearer. They are a person who God loves, who Christ died for. And even if you find yourself in dramatically opposition to each other. Like you you absolutely cannot agree. And you are even concerned that the ideas they are promoting would be detrimental to the future of civilization. That person (laughs) still bears the image of God. And so you must treat them, maybe even treat them in ways they don't know how to think of themselves. So we must outdo each other with honor. And um, even when someone is not behaving in a way that is consistent with their own image bearing. We must still treat them that way. So that's something that's always in my mind, that you are always talking to a person. You are always engaging with someone who bears the image of God, who Christ has died to redeem. And the other thing I think is that we are working toward um, resolution and goodness. We are not working toward being right. Okay. And I think that is a risk, especially for those of us who grew up in legalism, that being right was so important because if you weren't right, how did you know that you were safe with God? If you weren't Mm -hmm. right, how do you, how could you be guaranteed that you were approved of by God? And so being right was so important. And I'm not saying that we don't have truth that is objective and given to us from the Father and through his word. What I'm saying is a lot of times the goal for us becomes being right rather than being reconciled or rather than pursuing truth or pursuing the goodness of the gospel. And so for me, the two things are always, always treat people with respect that they deserve as image bearers and always, always be ready to say you're wrong 
and not have to prove you're right and get locked into some kind of fight where you can not let go because you're too embarrassed by either being shown up or whatever. This has been fun, Hannah. I just love it. And I would say, man, God help your kids get into a conversation. Started for listeners, guys have said to her, Man, I don't really have an agenda today. Let's just see where this conversation goes. And I have loved it. How can people connect well, with you? I'm on Twitter. I don't know if people heard that, but I'm on Twitter <laughs> and my handle is Sometimes a Light. Um, and that comes from the William Cooper song, Sometimes a Light Surprises the Christian while he sings, It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. So um, I'm on Twitter. I have a blog that you can find other writing. I don't do a lot of writing there, but I have all my other articles listed that I'm writing in other places. That's sometimeslight.com. I'm on Instagram and under Hannah Anderson, and I'm also on Facebook at Hannah Anderson. So I'm around. That's awesome. Well, we will put all of those shout outs too for people. You can, I'm sure, email Hannah in the midst of that. I actually want to just feel like I want to give out two books. I don't do it every single week, but I'm going to do your last book, um, All That's Good. And first to people who email me, I'm going to send them those books. Um, It has been just fun to be with you. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. Guys, as always, you can email me if you have any comments and you want to give me a shout out. Just want to have us pray for you. Lena at livingwithpower.org. This has been the Hope Podcast. I'll meet you guys again here next week. Have an awesome day. And remember that God loves you so, so much. Thank you.